0: This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Senator Jeff Flake is a fifth generation Arizonan who was raised on a cattle ranch in Snowflake, Arizona, named in part for his great great grandfather. He was the executive director of the Goldwater Institute, and prior to his election to the United States Senate, he served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2001 to 2013. But he's here today because he fears the American conservative movement has lost his way, so he wrote a manifesto, which is also a New York Times bestseller, The Conscience of a Conservative, a Rejection of Destructive Politics. And a return to principle. He joins me now for a closer look, Senator. You make a tough accusation in the book. It's not enough to be conservative; you have to be vicious. Tell me what what that means.
1: Well, it seems that the politics of today reward those who yell the loudest, and uh, I think we've seen it over time. It didn't all begin with this latest campaign or with this president, uh, but it certainly, uh, you know picked up a bit. Uh, But it started, I think, in politics, in my time, at least, Uh, you know, and I think it was 2008 with uh, Joe Wilson yelling, you lie, during the President's State of the Union address. And that uh, was condemned by some, but quickly used as a fundraising tool by others. And it's just accelerated beyond that point.
0: The title of your book is more than a nod to Barry Goldwater whose 1960 book had the same title. What do you mean when you talk about conservatism?
1: Well, the book is very much an homage to to Goldwater, um, but conservatism as defined by Barry Goldwater, is the maximum amount of freedom consistent with order. And I, I would define it much the same way. I think in 1960, he saw that uh, the conservative movement had been compromised by the New Deal. And so he put out a blueprint uh, on where the, uh, the conservative movement and the Republican Party needed to go. Uh, in today's uh, situation, I think, the Republican Party and the conservative movement are kind of being compromised by populism and by nativism, uh, anti-immigration, anti-trade sentiment. And, and I think the, the the shift needs to be righted.
0: In the book, you seem to say that Tom DeLay bears some responsibility for the beginning of the polarization. How so?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I served in the House of Representatives from 2001 to 2012. And during that time, Republicans held the majority in the House and in the Senate. Um, and we had a Republican president for much of that time. And it seemed over, over time, between 2001 and 2006, we lost our way, certainly, on spending. We, uh, we spent a lot of money, bloated appropriation bills, uh, but in particular, the type of spending we did, earmarked spending, that, that led to corruption. A couple of our colleagues going to jail uh, the so-called K Street project. It, it seemed that we, as Republicans, uh, were just uh, content with using the levers of power uh, to to maintain our majority, rather than trying to persuade. And, uh, and I think uh, Tom Delay was—you uh, know—he was in leadership during that time, and that was kind of his mantra.
0: General Mattis was asked what worried him most, and he didn't say North Korea or ISIS. He said, it's the lack of a fundamental friendliness. This ugliness in politics is more dangerous than we might realize. Is that what he means?
1: I do think that's what he means, and, and I could not agree with him more. Uh, Bob Gates has uh, you know, expressed similar sentiments as have other military leaders saying that they worry less about threats from abroad than the dysfunctionality of our political system here. And a lot of it has to do with our inability to sit down with each other across the political aisle and agree on uh, on things like spending or, or you know, defense matters. Uh, we're operating, for example, right now on a 16-year-old uh, authorization for use of military force because we haven't been able to uh, reach a bipartisan agreement to uh, craft another one. And that's tremendously damaging to our, our credibility abroad when we no longer speak with one voice, um, the Congress and the administration.
0: In Chapter 5 of the book, you list a number of things that you say happened seemingly overnight, like nativism and anti-free trade sentiments. I don't think anything happens overnight. Something's boiling up from beneath. Was there a period when you thought that conservatism started to go wrong?
1: Well, I mentioned that uh, during the the period 2001 to 2006, uh, that Republicans who used to, and I remember, and I mentioned during the book, uh, during the 1990s, I ran a think tank, the Goldwater Institute, uh, In Arizona, at the same time, Mike Pence was running the Indiana Policy Review in in Indiana. And I remember during that time, great debate the Republican Party had. Dick Armey, a majority leader, and uh, Bill Archer, former chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, two Republicans used to travel around the country and have almost like a a concert tour where they debated uh, the flat tax versus the consumption tax and the, the party was all about ideas and we became uh, the party of uh, you know just holding on to power by the use of power and a lot of that was during 2001 to 2006 when we we gave up the this you know the limited government mantle that we had and so we were forced to uh, delve into wedge issues like flag burning uh, or things like that. And it, it just uh, it didn't suit the, the party well. And, and uh, we've now kind of taken up a standard that is not uh, familiar to us. This anti-trade, uh, you know, isolationism, uh, you know, has never really uh, been the mainstay of uh, philosophy for the Republican Party, yet it seems to be now.
0: Senator, have your fellow conservatives read your book, and are you still invited to attend dinner?
1: <laughs> yeah, I can tell you, a lot of them uh, agree with me. Uh, certainly, it's been received well uh, by by those who've reviewed it. Uh, folks like David Brooks uh, the New York Times and uh, Michael Gerson, who writes for the Washington Post, and others. Uh, and uh, so, but among my colleagues, uh, yeah, a lot of them have read it, and. Uh, will tell me privately that they, they agree with it. Um, and certainly many of them have spoken out on many of the points that I've made in the book.
0: Would you say that 24-7 cable news cycle and the impact of social media is in large part helping to drive Americans and the Republican Party apart?
1: Yes, yeah, there's no doubt that that's the case. Um, I am glad that uh, everyone has access to more information. Um, and but what we thought, I think, uh, was that that would make people uh, maybe a little more well-rounded and uh, open to new opinions or ideas, or at least understanding of, of those who held different opinions or ideas. But uh, the uh, 24-hour news cycle and uh, proliferation of media, certainly social media, has, uh, it seems, simply allowed people to uh, enter echo chambers where they're exposed to only what they want to be exposed to. And I think that's damaging to democracy, whether it's uh, from the right or
0: from the left. You write about growing up on a ranch in the Southwest and a lifetime of direct experience with immigrants. How has that influenced your immigration politics
1: well it's had a great influence on it i, I did grow up on uh, on the f bar um uh, cattle ranch run by my father and three of his brothers There were uh, between our family of 11 children and uh, other uncles and aunts with uh, a lot of kids there were 39 of us raised on the ranch Uh, But we still needed additional labor, and uh, there was migrant labor that came across. It wasn't illegal at that time, uh, prior to to, uh, 1986, to hire uh, those who'd come across the border illegally. Their presence here was illegal, and I mentioned in the book that we had a few workers who were were picked up regularly by the Border Patrol and would find their way back. But uh, I, I realized that they worked hard, and they were here to support their families, and and try as I might since that time, I've never been able to look at uh, those folks as a criminal class. And I, I've, uh, I, I know that, that they have contributed to, to uh, you know, what we recognize as America. And uh, in many ways, they were seeking the American dream just like all of us are.
0: In the book, you write about the remarkable refugee doctors who assisted your father-in-law. How do you talk to your constituents about their fears of immigrants and refugees?
1: Well, I mentioned in the book we've gone through these fits and spasms over the years. It's uh, simply been a different uh, type of in- imminent, or, uh, immigrant group that we've targeted. And, uh, you know, I, I did mention in the book that two immigrant doctors uh, just last year saved the life of my father-in-law. One, an immigrant from uh, who was a Palestinian. Uh, the other, an Afghan, uh, who, if we uh, had targeted before they came to the United States, uh, majority Muslim countries or countries that have been compromised by terrorism, uh, they never would have made it here.
0: How did they save his um, life? Oh,
1: yes. Uh, he, uh, he, had a, he was 83 years old. he just pitched two softball games the day before, but uh, he was healthy, but he had a ruptured aorta. And he went to the first hospital, and uh, after 11 hours of surgery uh, by a doctor from, from Palestine, uh, another doctor had to come in from the Mayo Clinic, uh, and this doctor was from Afghanistan, and uh, operate uh, several more hours of surgery. But, uh, but he survived it, and certainly would have not, uh, would not for the heroic actions of these two doctors. And I can tell you, I'm glad that, uh, that they're here. They're like family to us now.
0: When we hear talk about a wall and the effectiveness of a wall, you wonder whether such people would be here. Uh, what's your feeling about the uh, Mexican border wall?
1: Well, I have been very supportive of comprehensive immigration reform. I was part of the effort in 2013 that produced the Senate compromise bill the bipartisan bill that had uh, increased border enforcement and we certainly need better uh, border security in certain areas of the border uh, and so we need in some places that means uh, steel fencing in some places that that simply means better surveillance or uh, a kind of virtual fence uh, but there's no there's no place in the uh, on our southern border that really calls for a a type of brick and mortar wall that was envisioned or explained during the last campaign. Uh, we certainly need better border security, but that's multifaceted. And, and I'm, I'm concerned not just with uh, the, the policy prescriptions that have been put out, but the language and tenor of the debate with regard to Mexico in particular. Uh, when the president referred to uh, migrants from Mexico as, as rapists or referred to the judge born in Indiana as a Mexican in a pejorative way, saying that he couldn't judge fairly because of that, that has a, a big impact on the politics of Mexico. Absolutely. And it might uh, drive them uh, into, you know, anti-Americanism. They could elect, uh, more easily, elect a leftist populace there, and then that would have tremendously, uh, you know, terrible uh, impacts on, on us and our border situation. So I'm I'm concerned not just about the policy, but about the rhetoric as well.
0: Moderate Representative Charlie Dent announced he won't seek re-election, mainly because of the polarization and dysfunction. And Bob Corker, another moderate senator, is also on the edge. Do you expect there'll be more? And are you at all surprised by this?
1: I'm I'm not surprised by it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm dismayed by it, certainly. Um, these two that you mentioned, Charlie Dent and Bob Corker, I hope Bob decides to, to stay, but uh, I think the Congress will be a lesser place without them. And uh, I, I am very concerned about the polarization. The big things that we need to solve can only be solved uh, if we reach across the aisle and, and share the political risk. And we've been unwilling to do that unable to do that uh, for the past several years. And uh, so we have these issues like our debt, which crossed $20 billion yesterday, Um, and, uh, you know, this increasing deficit as well, but just won't be dealt with uh, as long as we have this polarization.
0: Steve Bannon, backed by billionaire Robert Mercer, is targeting moderate Republic senators for primary challenges, including you. What do you think of this development?
1: Well, that's, uh, that's their prerogative. Um, I'll just have to deal with it. Um, I, I feel good about uh, where we are and about the policies I've adopted. My position has always been with any president. Uh, I'll support that president when I think uh, he's right and oppose him when I disagree uh, with his policies or when I think that they're detrimental to Arizona. And I think that's uh, pretty much what Arizonans expect of their senators. Arizona tends to elect uh, independent-minded senators.
0: The women of the Senate from both parties have dinner together once a month. McCain credited them with negotiating the end of the government shutdown. Could the men learn some lessons from the way the women work together? You bet.
1: You bet. We have uh, partisan luncheons uh, virtually every day that we're here in Congress, and some of us have pushed uh, to try to get our leadership to do that uh, on a more bipartisan basis. We've been able to do it more than we have in the past, but certainly not enough. It used to be, uh, you know, that members would tend to live in Washington together. Their kids would go to school together, and they knew each other, uh, you know, the Democrats and Republicans better than they do today, and uh, so it's it's becoming increasingly difficult as time goes on to work across the aisle.
0: Are you going to get legislation passed to save the DREAMers in time?
1: I sure hope so. I've always favored the DREAM Act. I never thought you ought to punish kids for actions taken by their parents, and uh, I I know that now that we have a deadline, um, I, I am one who did believe what uh, President Obama did, was outside of his constitutional authority. This has always been the prerogative of Congress uh, to deal with immigration in this manner. But uh, we shouldn't be excused from doing our, our duty. And uh, I've, I've uh, included the DREAM Act in legislation I've proposed, and I'm certainly sponsor of uh, the DREAM Act, as well as the BRIDGE Act, as well as the SAFE Act, and many ways to deal uh, with these kids who should be protected.
0: Now, you're on the Foreign Affairs Committee, so I'd like to ask you about Tillerson. When it comes to foreign policies, he says that national security and economic interests come first. Well meaning principles like freedom and human rights will sit on the sidelines. What would Barry Goldwater say to that?
1: Well, I think we uh, have benefited, the world has certainly benefited by American leadership and the whole. Kind of world order after the Second World War was based on uh, the United States uh, having uh, relationships with and trying to build up countries abroad uh, and to export our, our values as well. Now, I think uh, the Secretary is right in that, uh, in one sense, that if we export our economic kind of values, that in many ways, uh exports are are values of freedom as well because uh, in many ways it's one and the same but i i do i have seen uh, firsthand i've lived lived overseas and have experienced uh american leadership around the world and uh, i hope that uh, that we don't draw back from that it uh, the world has benefited significantly from it
0: a senate committee just refused the cuts to foreign and spending that the White House requested. And Lindsey Graham said, now is not the time for retreat. Now's the time to double down on diplomacy and development. I have to assume you would agree with that.
1: Well, I, uh, I, have, I share the uh, the uh, subcommittee on Africa, and uh, I deal with, uh, with uh, 54 countries there. And I can tell you and give you a good example of where... Uh, some actions taken by our one of our previous presidents, President Bush, with regard to PEPFAR, uh, the effort to combat AIDS in Africa, has paid tremendous dividends, not just in eliminating human suffering, which was the most important result, but it has resulted in better relationships with those countries and the ability to work with them to combat terrorism and uh, work on other security issues. So. Uh, I, i'm I'm very much uh, in favor of, of working with with countries. Uh, certainly some of our foreign aid is wasted. I don't think anybody would dispute that. Uh, but uh, but there is a lot of uh, of aid, humanitarian aid that is simply good uh, for us to do and uh, and helps us in other ways as well. And some of our development uh, with regard to the millennium challenge accounts and things that we've developed more recently, have uh, led to to better spending of foreign aid abroad. So I, I hope that we can continue uh, uh, you know working both angles, both the use of force where we have to, but certainly the use of diplomacy first.
0: In your new book, you write, we must be willing to risk our careers to save our principles. It seems like you're doing just that with the book. Do you have a tough primary race coming up?
1: I do have a tough primary race coming up. Um, I think it would have been a tough primary race regardless. uh, But but it's no doubt that uh, speaking up, as I have, about the direction of the party uh, has made it more difficult. Um, But I I felt that uh, I had to do so. Um, You have to do it when it matters. And if I were to wait until I was safely reelected, um, and then write a book it just uh it wouldn't matter as much it matters now and uh, i think it's important enough to stand up
0: that's that's really very interesting and if you win your primary fight do you think that's a hopeful sign that your ideals of civility are winning
1: well, I hope so. Uh, Michael Gerson wrote a couple of weeks ago that uh, this is the most important race in the country to determine uh, whether or not uh, you know, stability matters, whether the Republican Party will remain the party of limited government, economic freedom, free trade, or, or whether we become a, a populist party. And uh, I, I think that it's, it's kind of taking on that, uh, that kind of importance, this race.
0: In the book, you write that if you want contemporary examples of politics for the common good, I look to who raised me. Tell me how your family history and being Mormon shaped your politics.
1: I grew up, um, as was mentioned, in rural Arizona. Uh, My father was mayor for a time of the town of Snowflake, where I was raised. Uh, My uncle, Jake Flake, from Snowflake, was Speaker of the House in Arizona for years. Uh, another uncle, uh, Stan Turley, was Speaker of the House and then Senate President. Uh, one common theme that you saw was bipartisanship. They teamed up with other particularly rural lawmakers and, and got things done. Uh, being raised on a farm, you recognize if, if you don't milk the cow, the cow won't be milked. <laughs> and hmm. And you've got to get things done. And uh, unlike uh, today, if we don't pass a, a budget or appropriation bills and we just slap it all in a CR or an omnibus, and and, uh, and that, you know, <laughs> it doesn't get the job done. And, and that was anathema to, to those who raised me. And with regard to, you know, a small Mormon town, uh, I mentioned in the book, uh, Snowflake, in the late 1800s, the town where I was raised... Uh, the Mormon Church, who had kind of sent my great-great-grandfather to, to found Snowflake, uh, went in and and basically said one day, those who are living west of Main Street will be Republican, those living east of Main Street will be Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> they, the, the Church thought it was important to have a good mix. <laughs> and and that, uh, that kind of assignment uh, has really held almost until this generation. Uh, my father was raised as a Democrat. Uh, But party labels didn't mean as much. Uh, My father was certainly conservative. Um, He just wasn't in a bad mood about it.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. You you also write in the book uh, about what you call your most valuable lesson in democracy from your early work in Africa. What did you learn
1: well, I was fortunate enough to, one, serve a Muslim mission in South Africa, and Zimbabwe. And then seven years later, uh, when I was married and had one child, uh, my wife and I went to the country of Namibia uh, to run a political foundation during that time, the year that Namibia gained its independence from South Africa. And so I was able to watch a country have its first elections and uh, write its constitution, uh, from which it drew great inspiration from the United States. I mentioned in the book that during that time, I, I, uh, it was February of 1990, and Vaclav Havel, the president of Czechoslovakia, had just addressed the joint session of the U.S. Congress. And I sat there in Namibia, uh, what was almost the newest country in the world, and uh, read the words of a, a playwright, uh, Lakhlav Hamel from one of the newest democracies in the world as well in Czechoslovakia. Um, uh, you know, his, his words thanking the United States for its inspiration and very much its liberation, a uh, second time of, of Europe. And uh, just uh, that never left me. That had a big impact on me and, and what I wanted to pursue after that time.
0: Do you think that the world will lose trust in America if we keep pulling out of international agreements? Doesn't America first end up with America alone?
1: I am concerned about uh, about, uh, the skewing uh, institutions and organizations that we helped build and uh, that we kind of discount now Obviously, we have issues with the United Nations uh, and uh, particularly the General Assembly. But I've seen, uh, as was the case in Namibia in 1989-90, it became independent because of UN Resolution 435 passed in 1978, uh, Security Council Resolution. Um, And uh, the U.S. was behind that and and helped with it. Uh, I am concerned that, uh, that we're... We're trying to go it alone a little too much here. We need uh, our allies, and they need us.
0: The Trans-Pacific Partnership was meant partly as a counter to China's influence in the Pacific. What now? And will the anti-free traders in the administration win?
1: I'm very concerned that uh, we walked away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I, I think that that will haunt us for decades to come. Uh, With regard to economic growth, but uh, as you mentioned, it also has tremendous ramifications geopolitically. Uh, We want the countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, to be part of our trade orbit, not just China's. And uh, right now, the the remaining countries who were in the TPP are negotiating amongst themselves uh, trade agreements that leave us out. Uh, We are only less than 5% of the world's population and less than 20% of the world's economic output. If we don't trade, we don't grow.
0: He was first elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from Arizona in 2000. Then in 2012, was elected to serve as the state's junior senator. Disturbed by what he sees as the decline of civility in politics, that he says has made it nearly impossible for government to function properly. He's just published a manifesto called The Conscience of a Conservative A Rejection of Destructive Politics and a Return to Principle. Senator Jeff Flake, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closerlook at bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word at bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt one word. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt.